Okay, well, if you'd open up in your booklets there to the second session notes, Confident in God's Reward, and we will get started. There are uh, two things that are surprising about the sport of badminton, and um, first is that there's actually an N in there. It's not badminton, like you're correcting some strange kitten named Mitten, you know, badminton, bad, badminton. Uh, there's an N that's snuck in there, although that's not typically how people pronounce it. Uh, the other thing that you might not know about badminton is that it's, it's, a, it's an Olympic sport, and uh, it, it's actually pretty intense. So I don't know if you've ever played it in a PE class or played it in a backyard where you've got the little birdie and you know, you're just lobbing it back and forth over the, the net. When, but when Olympic athletes play badminton, they are, they're diving for it. They, they're just, it's, it's pretty crazy. It's almost more intense than, uh, than a game of uh, tennis there. So um, something to see. Uh, and if I had Wi-Fi in this room, I would have showed you a video of, of that taking place. Um, but there was a, a really interesting scenario in the 2011 London Olympics. And uh, there, there was uh, China, 2012, sorry. Uh, 2012 London Olympics, China versus Korea. And it was an interesting scenario that, that got created because uh, whoever won that match or lost that match, they, they, they would both advance. So they, they weren't going to be taken out uh, of the tournament. Um, but the, the person who, the, the team that won that, that particular match, they would have to play a harder team than the team that would lose. And so it was a, it was a really strange scenario that happened. And, and they ended up, both, both teams were, were trying to lose. And at first, they, they weren't even, you know, trying to fake it at all. They were just, you know, serving terribly and lobbing it down. They kind of looked like me trying to play volleyball earlier. Um, so, uh, but then eventually the, the referee came out and gave them uh, a warning, you know, uh, you know, you, you guys, this is bad sportsmanship. You got to get in the game and, and, you know, this is what we're here to, to be about at the Olympics. And so then they kind of tried to look like they were giving a little bit of effort, but it was, it was still clear both teams were trying to lose this game, uh, because they didn't want to have to play the harder team. Uh, the, the, the reason being that there, there was no particular incentive for them to win. Uh, now, ironically, they both ended up getting disqualified out of the Olympics because of that. Uh, so that, that happened the, the next day after that. Um, but, but this illustrates a really important principle for us, which is that uh, we, need a, we need some sort of sense of reward in order for our effort to be worth it. A pure sense of duty will only get you so far, even in the Olympics, even, even in this, this particular sport where you know, these people have trained their whole life for this, this event. Right? That, that's not enough for them to say, hey, just for the sake of the sport, I'm going to put in all the effort I need, even if that means it's going to make it harder for me later on. There, there was no sense that this is going to reward me if I, if I do that. Now, that's, that's true in, in sports. It's true in other areas of life, and it's particularly true in the Christian life. Unless you see the reward, then your effort will not last, and you'll just end up like China and Korea in that, in that match. Well, let me raise a question for us to consider tonight, which is this. How do you think of 
God. And that, that's been a major topic for us as we've ventured into Hebrews 11 because we're told that we must believe that God is, right? But, but how do you process his expectations, his commandments, the demands that, that you receive, that he's, he's placed upon you? How do you manage the start of another year and, and a reminder, and you know, this, this happens to you, you come to an event like this and you kind of get reminded of all the things that you're supposed to be about and you spend time in small groups this afternoon talking about practices and, and habits and, and you know, there's this sense of, yeah, I know, I should, should be in my Bible and I should pray and I need to share the gospel. And, and, and so th- there are expectations that get communicated here and that you you feel, but, but, but how do you process this? Is God demanding service from you and, and, and you know, just raw faithfulness and you're recognizing, yeah, I just got to push through another year? Or is he seeking to delight you? Is that what God is after here? Why does God want you to obey him? What's his motive in this? What what is God after? And and we'll we'll talk about this tonight. Everybody does something out of some sense of motive, out of of some reason, right? That's what causes you to pursue things. And and, and God has his reasons for what he pursues as well. And the Bible locates it in his glory, but it also defines what glorifies God in a way that's counterintuitive. For us, but but is our obedience, is our worship, is our doing the right thing, does that kind of fulfill some sort of need in God that He's lacking? Well, that's where we started last night. This is the God who is. This is the God who always is whether or not you and I ever arrived on the scene would not detract anything from who he is. He has no needs, right? And and I know we try to kind of console ourselves and cultural Christianity and the K-Love version of it kind of does this where it's like God's just got this like real warm, fuzzy feelings of, of, of need toward you. And then, you know, he just is, he's just waking up ready to see you, right? It's trying to get something that's true in that. But what it can kind of portray is we kind of complete something in God. And he's just there and he's lonely and waiting for us to, to get with the program. But that is not how the Bible presents God to us. When we obey God, when we worship God, we do not add anything to God. He does not need us. We need him. But the road of dependence runs in one direction. And and what that means is that, and let me kind of mess with us, In, in an important sense, we don't serve God. Right? I don't know, that, that kind of messes with our language because we, we often talk about serving God and what we're going to do in service to God. And there's nothing wrong with, with that, that word. But there's an important sense in which you and I do not serve God. Right? It, it, he says this in Psalm 
50. I'm not served by human hands as if I needed anything. And when Jesus entered this world, he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Put another way, God is the giver and we are the getters. And that only ever runs in one direction, right? And, and, and we need to get this right because this is what faith, what confidence is made of. Right? Hebrews 11, verse 6, this verse we've been returning to again and again. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Right? What's going to please him? For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God is a rewarder. That's who he is. And he loves to be thought in that way. He insists of being thought of in that way. That, that's what pleases him. And, and here's the reasoning in this text, right? John Piper helps us out here. He says, behind the assertion that God is rewarding is the fact that God is so full and so completely self-sufficient that he overflows. Rather than needing our service, he is like a never-ending spring of life and energy and joy and beauty and goodness and power. Therefore, it pleases God when we come to him in a way that affirms this and delights in it, when we come to him as a rewarder. Now, the writer of Hebrews simply asserts that this is what faith does. Faith comes to God with the confidence, there's that word, that he is, and faith comes with the confidence that God will be a generous giver. He's not arguing that faith is this way because he finds it defined in the Old Testament stories, He's saying, given the absolute reality of God's being and God's fullness, this is what faith has to be. This is the end of the argument, right? And, and, and this is something I want you to learn how to do. Pay attention to how Scripture reasons because th this is going to help you understand it, and it's going to help you realize what kind of book the Bible is. The Bible argues, the Bible makes a case, all right? You don't just open it up and you're, you're treated to a bunch of fortune cookies and sayings that are there like the sound of one hand clapping and it's like, yeah, it kind of doesn't really make sense, but you know, you're supposed to just uh, think about it, dude. That's not what the Bible is, right? The, the, the Bible pulls together arguments and Hebrews 11 is an argument and he's saying, okay, faith pleases God. That's the, that's the ground there because if you're going to come to God, you need to believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. And, and then he goes back into the Old Testament and he says, well, Enoch pleased God. Therefore, Enoch had to have had this kind of confident faith that he's describing here. And so the piper says, that's the bottom of the reasoning. We could say it like this. What pleases God is that our hearts and minds display God's being and God's beauty. That we display God's existence, that he is, and his excellence. That we display how real he is and how rewarding he is. This is what pleases God. And this is faith. 
And he's given this illustration before, and it, I think it's very helpful for why this glorifies God. He says, you, you could think of God as like a, a watering trough, you know, like a bucket of water, uh, or, or like a, a thing that you, you feed animals water out of, uh, not feed them, but let them have water to drink. Again, my, my, my words do uh, change as the weekend goes on. Um, Right, and, and that has to be constantly refilled. And you, you know, you you take your buckets and you go over and you you pour more water into the watering trough. And and people think that that's kind of what they do when they worship. Right, you fill up your bucket of of obedience and singing and what's pleasing to God. And you run over and you bring it over to the watering trough and you dump it in. And that needs to be constantly refilled. That doesn't glorify God to think of Him in that way. He says, he's the mountain spring. He's the source. He is the unending supply of water. And how do you glorify a mountain spring? You come and you drink. The only thing that you bring is your thirst. And the reality is, we are thirsty, and we will bring it to Something You will bring your longing and your devotion to something that calls out to you, something that is attractive and desirable. We are all on a hunt for happiness, and, and this is why we do what we do. And if you just look out on the human condition and you want an explanation, and this is what God's Word provides to us, God's word provides insight into why do people do what they do that so often just seems to be a mystery. Why is it that people enter destructive relationships? Why are so many girls willing to make a fool of themselves running after some guy, making themselves vulnerable to his desires and demands? Why do guys play the game and use them? Why do people burn through friendships and, and find themselves no longer on speaking terms with the very person that they, they just wanted to be around all of the time last year? Why, why do people change or move on to another crowd and, and climb over people in their attempt to get in the in-group? You ever had that happen to you where they, they, you had a close friend and, and, and it was kind of you and them and there was this other group and... Maybe y'all made fun of them a little bit because y'all weren't part of that. But the, the day came where they climbed over you on their way to be a part of that group and kind of were unconcerned that you were left behind in the process. Why do things like addictions hold people? Right? Maybe you, you know family members and, and friends who have walked through things like this that, 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 that caused them to throw away their lives in the pursuit of the next buzz or the next image or the next purchase or the next high. The reason is we are chasing after pleasure, after, after a reward, and, and we were made to do so, but we were made for something that satisfies. And, and this is at the heart of this chapter, right? Hebrews 11, open up Hebrews 11. And about midway there, 
You know, he's going through different characters in the Old Testament, and he gets to Moses. And he says in verse 24, by faith, Moses, and this might be in your notes too, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Right now, pleasures of Egypt. Um, that might be a little hard for us to uh, associate with because for most of us, Egypt is a bunch of uh, desert and pyramids and maybe mummies. Uh, I was watching the Star Wars film and I saw their remaking another mummy film. I don't know. They just run out of ideas at this point. So, uh, but, but, but think about Egypt in the ancient world, right? It, it, was, it was like the America of the ancient world. It was a, it was a place of status and opportunity. They were cultural movers and shakers. They were, they were powerful, influential trendsetters, and, and there, there were pleasures available, especially if you live in the palace, right? Especially if you're part of the highest governmental family, right? But Moses, he could have had anything he wanted, right? Any, any food that he wanted, women that he wanted, people that he wanted, slaves that were attending to all of his needs, right? This is just all available to him. So some of the things that, that this represents were, were sinful, right? There, there are illicit pleasures that are available to him. But, but a lot of it is, is, is not wrong in itself. It's just, it's just a comfortable, plush lifestyle, right? A lifestyle of, of convenience. And he could have stayed there, right? And he's a Hebrew, and the Hebrew people, they're, 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 they're under the arm of slavery here, but he's not having to deal with any of that, right? That's, that's not part of his daily anxiety or worry, right? That, that's where he could have remained. And yet M Moses amazingly turned his back on all of that. Why do you do that? What's going on here? Well, he was convinced that there was something better. And Hebrews uses this description of fleeting pleasures, and, and, and here's reality. What looks attractive and fulfilling has an expiration date, and that is always the case. It's, it's temporary. It fizzles out. The thing is, pleasure is a moving target. You know, you, you guys don't, probably for the most part, you, you don't like what you liked when you were three years old, right? You've kind of grown out of some of that. Uh, you know, my kids, they, uh, they like to wake up early, and I don't know what it is. Like, well, it's like this sense that maybe the sun might come up soon, and so I'm going to get out of bed, and I'm just going to, there, there's opportunity there, right? There are toys to play with. There's Netflix shows to watch, and they don't even have to wait for shows to come on anymore, right? You just, it's streaming. It's there. Uh, so they, so they want them to wake up, right? Uh, eventually, the time comes, right, by your age, where... Uh, Waking up early, unless you're one of the strange birds like Taylor or anybody else, uh, that, that's no longer attractive, right? Uh, sleeping in, right? So all of a sudden, 
pleasure existed in one category for you. It's like, face the day. It's got, it's got opportunity there. And then it's shifted over to sleep till noon if you can and keep going if nobody wakes you up, right? That, that becomes pleasure. That becomes reward, yeah, reward for you. And, and that's just true in, in, in so many categories, right, of how you define fun. There, there, are, there are things that my, my kids are excited to do that I could just take in here and say, all right, that's going to be the, the games for youth camp and youth winter retreat from now on, right? You guys, you guys would get so upset. Uh, because what we, what we like changes over time. And, and, and what's recognized as cool or lit, that changes too, right? The word lit. Uh, that, you know, that, that's, a, that's a word that uh, it was once in circulation, mainly referring to uh, a, a drug-induced experience. Uh, fell out of uh, usage and then now has arisen again. And then and one day you're going to be making fun of that, that phrase as well. But, but here, here's an example of this. Um, I, I came across an article and it was titled, The Picture That Killed the Dab. And uh, the, the, the subheading was, Cam Newton's dab had, has been slowly diluted for a while now, but one moment in particular was the final dagger. And here it is. This is what it has become. This guy, he's just like, my, I don't know if my uh, laser's working on here, but he's like sneezing into his elbow. I think uh, this is the, so this is the Charlotte uh, mayor and the city council. Um, all right, so I'm just going to go ahead and take that off before we have to see anything else pathetic. But listen, th- th- this happens all over life, right? What, what, what's new and exciting soon becomes familiar and boring. And you know, if you're bored, you're available. If, if you find yourself restless and I just wish there was something to do and something to be about, now you're on the hunt. And that's a, that's a dangerous place to be in when you're looking for something to, to rescue you out of your boredom, but, but it, it, can, it can escape you. It, it's, it's elusive. You know, we, we mention this often, but why is it that we pull out our phones so often? Why check it again and again and again? We're searching for something interesting and entertaining, and the last time you checked it has already faded away. You know, the, the, the last sense of People have liked my post, right? That's no longer enough. You need new likes. You need new notifications. You need a new sense that there's something, there's some connection that's available for me here because it, it disappears. And, pe- and people can spend a lifetime in search of something that they believe is going to make them happy. And when it's in their grasp, it doesn't do for them what they thought. And so it makes them nasty. Here's an interesting uh, thought from Cynthia Heimel. She uh, wrote a book titled, If You Can't Live Without Me, Why Aren't You Dead Yet? Um, but, but in that book, she says this. I pity celebrities. No, I do. The minute a person becomes a celebrity is the same minute he or she becomes a monster. Sylvester Stallone, 
Bruce Willis and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings with whom you might lunch on a slow Tuesday afternoon, but now they have become supreme beings, and their wrath is awful. It's not what they had in mind. The night each of them became famous, they wanted to shriek with relief, finally, now they were adored, invincible, magic. The morning after the night each one of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose of barbiturates. All their fantasies had been realized, yet the reality was still the same. If they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and ha-ha happiness had happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And, and, you know, maybe your category isn't fame, although we're all a little bit fame-hungry in our own way. But, you know, I, I meet with, with older single people who just feel like life has passed them by and, 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 and they've become dislocated. They're in a different place than they ever imagined that they would be. They're in their 40s, they're in their 50s, and they are alone. They don't have a family. They don't have a companion, and, and they are depressed. They feel like everything has gone wrong. And then I, I meet with married people who feel like marriage hasn't delivered what they hope. It, it's brought headaches and, and heartbreaks. It's brought complications and mess. And it's like, can I just get these two groups to sit down and talk to each other and, and tell one another? And it's like the, the, the single person thinks, oh, if only I would be married, everything would be okay. And the married person thinks, oh, man, if I were single, I'd be so free. You wouldn't have to worry about all this. It's like, you guys just sit down and talk for a second and tell one another that, that what you're looking for is not going to provide you what you think in the way that you think. And listen, if you're struggling with discontent, if you feel like, I haven't gotten what I wanted, be careful because maybe the thing you're chasing after when you get it will, will feel so empty, it's depressing. And many of these things are, are good things, but they weren't meant to satisfy you. Life is poked through with holes, okay? It doesn't, it doesn't hold what we think it holds. It just, you, you pick up, you pick up any experience, right? If that's a certain recognition, if that's, you know, certain college experience or a relationship or whatever it is, you just, you just pick up life and it's like, you know, my, my kids have this bath toy that, that's got a bunch of holes in it and they, and they scoop up the water and they try to like dump it up. But by the time they scooped it out, all the water is drained out of it, right? That's just the experience of everything that you touch in this life. And by design, by God's intention, because he has greater joy planned for you, something greater than comfort and thrills here and now. Look at Hebrews 10.35. We saw this last night. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. But listen, so often that's exactly what we do. 
We trade in our reward so cheaply. We, we find fleeting pleasures to be enough. As C.S. Lewis ha- has put it, the problem is, is not that we want things too much, right? If you, if you could just get your, your, your want reflex, just, just tone that down, right? That's not the problem, actually. The problem is that you settle too quickly. He says we are far too easily pleased. Hebrews 12 verse 1 talks about the sin that easily entangles us. And, and, and sometimes it's easy to take us down because we'll sell ourselves for next to nothing. We will easily fall prey to the false advertisements. And, and it's, it's not so much that we are deceived as much as we are deceiving ourselves. There's a, a line in a song by Andrew Peterson that, that has always resonated with me. And he's just describing the fallen condition in his own life that he's experienced. And he puts it like this. He says, I've tried to fall when I could stand. And I know what that's like. Right? I, I, I could have stood. God gave me everything I needed to withstand that temptation, and I could have obeyed. I could have not fallen into sin, but I too easily let myself, in fact, tried to fall, when that didn't have to be how that would end. And like those badminton players trying to fail because they don't perceive the reward, and, and, and it doesn't take much. He, he says in Hebrews 12, verse 16, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. All right, it, you guys know this. You, you, all you had to do was experience lunch at this place, and then come dinner, and you guys were starting to order pizza. You, you were coming up with a different plan, right? It, it touched your appetite. It touched your little, you know, hunger trigger there. And, and so you're trying to figure out, okay, what can I do? What kind of system can I create? How can I get myself off of here and pretend like it's a huge secret, even though everybody knows I'm doing it? Um, yeah. Uh, so, but, 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 but we start scheming when we're, when we're hungry, right? And, and, and it's really interesting how, how Hebrews describes this. He says, do not be sexually immoral like Esau. And you go back and you read that story in Genesis. I don't remember any naked people running around, right? Uh, why does he call it sexual immorality? Because he wanted immediate relief. He, he had a... a an itch that needed to be scratched right away, and somehow he was convinced that that meal was worth all of his inheritance and his rights as a son. And he takes all of that future blessing and and what is his and trades it in for a bowl of lentils. He tells Jacob, I'm so hungry, I'm about to die. Right? You, you, when, when, when you're feeling what Esau is feeling here, you get dramatic. You, you lose any sense of proportion. And he's saying it's that same impulse. It's that same choosing of, of instant gratification of, what, of what's going to serve me here and now. That's the heart behind sexual immorality. And that's the heart behind gluttony. 
And that's the heart behind so much of our sinful pursuits. We sin because we believe it rewards us. Listen, nobody sins out of a sense of duty. Nobody says, all right, I guess if I have to, I'll sin, man. You know, it's like, you, that doesn't happen. There, there's a perceived reward in, in things like laziness and things like answering your cell phone. Um, what does laziness do for you? Um, let's just, let's just, uh, is, that a, is that an acquisition of the metal detector? Guy's calling you. He's looking for his stuff. He's like, why'd you steal from me, dude? All right. Do what you can to silence that thing and uh, throw it back on the beach. All right. Let's try to recover this meeting. All right. Why? Why, why when you when you have something that you know you're supposed to do and there are deadlines and responsibilities and stuff your parents have asked you to take care of, why do you, why do you keep putting that off and say, yeah, I'll get to that and, and you know, you've taken another nap or you've done something else instead and, and everything gets pushed up to right on the deadline and then, and then you're having a get you know, push other things, other priorities out of the way to catch up on stuff that you've neglected, right? Uh, I don't know if I'm going to go here. Yeah, I'll go here. (laughs) There is just the reality of of life today and and busyness, busyness can, can masquerade our laziness. And sometimes it can feel like life is really busy. And, And I know this is like, condescending, but I have old people in my life who tell me this too. Um, you don't know what it feels like to be busy yet, all right? Uh, they're, they're just, the, the, the number of busy factors that are in your world, they're limited and they're constrained, and they just keep getting added to as you, as you move through life. But, but that sense that I, I've, got, I've got too much going on for me to show up to youth tonight or for me to make this church activity, or whatever it is for me to pray, read, read the Bible, is it that you have every waking moment of your life is demanded of you? Or is it that all of your responsibilities got shoved up against the deadline because there were other things, there were other pleasures that you were, you were after, right? The pleasure of sleep, the pleasure of inactivity and gaming and, and other you know, interactions and opportunities that are available for you. Well, we, we, we go to laziness because we're, we're shopping for some sort of immediate reward that's going to shove aside the long-term goal for us. Or, or what about things like lying? A lot of people lie. And I do have a concern. I have a concern for... I don't know if it's unique to where you guys are at, um, but just the, the ease at which lying comes. It becomes just a normal way of using language, right? And, and, and you're not, you don't care if one another, if, if, you know, if, if you find out, yeah, you, you, that was just a lie to your parents. It's just like, it's like that's, that's normal. It's a normal thing to do, to not feel like I, I really need to tell the truth. 
I can spin it. I can, I can include this and not include that. Why do people do that? Because you're, you're, after, you're after some sense of safety here and now. You're after the reward of not having to, to face the consequences of something you've done or a grade that you've gotten or where you were and, you know, you weren't supposed to be over here and they thought you were here, right? And, and, and what you're trading in, you're trading in the long-term benefit of trust. And listen, if, if, if you have lied to someone, and you're going to need to know this for all your relationships, so start practicing it with your parents. Trust is something that gets slowly built up over time. And when you lie to them and they find out about that, the entire bank account balance is depleted. And it's back on empty. And then you have to make deposits again and again and again into the bank of trust before that's ever going to be something you can draw from. And so I know lying seems so tempting and easy and it's going to get you what you want today, but you are stealing from future reward just even in that relationship when you do that. Or about the category of, of lust and all of its ways that it is available and manifests to us in in our culture, in our, in our culture that is so relationship-focused and sensuality-focused and that, that's just in our face and, and normalized. Right? Whatever it is that, that you're after, if, if, if it's a sense of affirmation and affection that comes from relationships and, and there's, there's an immediate reward in that, and it can cost you your integrity as you go after it because you like, you like that sense that somebody really cares about me. So, somebody wants to be intimate with me. Somebody wants to be physical with me. And you're, you're, you're trading in your integrity. You're trading in purity. You're, you're trading in the future reality that God has planned for those experiences in your marriage one day for something right now that is shot through with holes. And listen, it's got an expiration date. Even if it's exciting right now, you'll pick it up and you realize this gets emptied out so fast. If you have been returning again and again to pornography, and sensual images and sexually explicit content. Why do you find yourself going back to that again and again? Why every time do you tell yourself this is the last time and this is going to stop and I'm going to get this in order and it was okay just this time? You will never find an image that is naked enough. You will never find a video that is adventurous enough. You will just go on and on and you will never say, okay, I've seen enough. The reason is you, you're searching for something that will never give you what you want. But it will shape you. It will corrode your soul. It will affect your responsiveness to God, it will make you dull to him. The pure in heart 
will see God. That's what Jesus says. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, you have to value seeing God in all of its long-term, eternal realities over what sacrificing purity here and now gets you in an instant in order for that to matter to you. But if you found, like, I, I, I have trouble understanding God. He feels distant to me. I just don't feel like I see him. I don't feel like he's really at work in me. I read the Bible, and I don't understand it, and I pray, and it's like nothing happens, and I sit in meetings like this, and I don't get much out of the messages and that sort of thing. If, if that's your experience, right, there could be a number of things going on there, right? And, and depending on what it is, and, it, you know, if we sat down and we just talk through realities in life, may, maybe that would be an opportunity for encouragement. That would be an opportunity for me to say, hey, press on because God is good toward you and, and he is at work and, and you're just not in a place of seeing all of that right now, but just continue to be faithful and you will reap the reward of that. But for some of us, might it be that we don't hear much from God, we don't see much of God because we have become dull because we have not preserved purity and we're used to instant thrills and we're used to returning again and again to sinful habits that affect us and do not quench our thirst. You know, there's this classic kind of proverb or concept that sailors would have for when they were lost at sea and shipwrecked and, and all of a sudden you, you realize you, you are dying of thirst. And I, I don't remember how it was worded or what exactly was described, but, but there was this warning because there's this temptation, right? You, you are on a, maybe a raft in the middle of an ocean and you are so thirsty and sure enough, you are surrounded by water. There's no shortage of water. But what's the problem with that water? It's salt water. Gulp it down, and you know what happens to you? You get more thirsty because the, the, the salt just it, it absorbs, it takes away any of the benefit of it. Maybe Ben could explain it to us in more detail. Um, but, but, but this is what we do, right? We, we, we go to things, and we bring our thirst to them, and we gulp down the salt water, and all it's done is made us more thirsty than when we started. But, but there's a contrast here in, in Hebrews. Chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All right? There's a parallel here in, in, this, in chapter 12, right? You saw it was uh, chapter 12, and it was in uh, verse 16. Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And in verse 1, Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross right, for a single meal. Esau traded in his birthright, and Jesus, for the joy set before him, he traded in his comfort here and now, and he endured 
a humiliating and shameful and painful death because there was joy on the other end of him. That he was convinced this is worth it. This is, this is worth me trading in a life of comfort and ease. You know, there's that, that classic moment where Jesus is being tempted and he's, he's hungry in the wilderness and, and Satan offers him food. He says, hey, just turn these stones into bread right now, pal. You can do it. You can be fed. He offers him something for his appetite, right? To trade in his birthright for a single meal. That's the offer that's presented to Jesus. And he says, man doesn't live by bread alone. Right? And he's offered a, a sense of false security. He takes him up to a high place and he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And, 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 and God, is, he's going to just send angels and your feet aren't even going to touch the rocks. Right? What would, what would that provide for Jesus? That would provide a sense of certainty. Right? And, and, and that he is God's son in, in this secure sense and he doesn't have to face suffering. He doesn't have to face ridicule. He can escape it all. And he says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then he takes him up to the temple and he, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he appeals to his, his sense of, of pleasure and glory and, 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 and prosperity. He says, I'll give you all this. You just bow down and worship me. And he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. There was something in God that Jesus, even in all of his human dimensions, and Hebrews is very clear, he, he was tempted in every way that we are. He was fully human. And so it wasn't just out of his divinity that he resisted these temptations. It was out of the same humanity that you and I have. And there was something in God. There was a reward that he was looking to. That was the reason why he did not trade that in. But you need to have a, a long-term definition of joy for that to work. You need to be willing to trade in something now that will gain you tremendously in, in the future. I remember Pastor Keith sharing this illustration about um, the man who initially invested in this small startup company. Uh, he had, I think it was like $250,000 uh, to spend, which is about a million dollars in today's terms. So this, this, is, this is a sizable amount, right? You, there's a lot you could do if you're given a million dollars, what's that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's what he had. And uh, there was an opportunity for him to invest it in this, uh, this startup company of a couple of guys that came in. And they, they dressed strange and they were a little smelly and, you know, wasn't really sure what to do with them. But they had an idea of, of what if we could develop these things called personal computers, right? And, and used to, if you were going to access a computer, you, you, ha you had like a whole room in the building, and that was the computer system that it was all run on. So the PCs hadn't taken off. And, and this guy, he took his $250,000 and he put it in their company. What company was that? Apple, right? And, and, and Apple is worth $651 billion today. That is 600 
and 51 times 1,000 million. All right? So he parted with the, the, the million that he initially had, but the return and the long-term reward, the comparison, it, it doesn't even make sense. And these numbers don't even compare to what God has for us. And, and, and listen, this is what you need to be convinced of. This is what you need to be confident in if you're going to succeed in the fight against sin and live the kind of life that God has called you to. Sam Storm says this in your notes. How do you fight the pleasure of sin? I'll tell you with another pleasure. Holiness is not attained, at least not in any lasting, life-changing way, merely through prohibitions, threats, fear, or shame-based appeals. Right? That, that, that's the resources that a lot of people use. Maybe you know, sometimes parents can pull these out, but prohibitions, threats, fear, shame-based appeals. Holiness is attained by believing in, trusting, banking on, resting in, savoring, and cherishing God's promise of a superior happiness that comes only by falling in love with Jesus. Sam Storms, in, in his book there, Pleasures Evermore, he, he gives uh, this illustration from Greek mythology. It's from the Odyssey. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the, some of the characters uh, about Ulysses. And uh, Ulysses was on his way back from, from Troy. He had gone to, to rescue Helen of Troy. And about Helen, it was said that her her, her face set a thousand ships to sail, right? She's just with this desirable person. Wars were started on behalf of her beauty. But anyway, so he, he's traveling back from, from, from Troy after his, his mission. And uh, there are these creatures called the sirens. And, and they have the most beautiful song that you've ever heard. It is just mesmerizing and hypnotizing and yet utterly destructive. Because those who hear the song of the sirens, they, 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 they all of a sudden, they find themselves setting the course of their ship to head toward them. And then they find that their ship crashes against the rocks and the, the sirens that are like these beautiful women, all of a sudden their true appearance comes to form and, and they're cannibals and they eat the people. So, uh, Ulysses knows this is what's in store for him. But he comes up with a plan, right? He, he has a plan in place to face the sirens. And so what he does is he takes wax and he puts wax in, in all, of his, uh, all of his sailors' ears, all right? Maybe you guys have an inordinate amount of wax in your ears. Um, so that they can't hear anything while, while they're rowing and while they're, they're setting sail. Um, but he, he does one thing different. He doesn't put any wax in his ears. What he does is he ties himself to the mast of his ship with, with ropes that he could not break. And he says, no matter what I say, don't listen to me. If I say, turn the ship, we need to go to this destination. Don't listen to anything that I say. You just keep setting sail for our course. And he does that. And he listens to the siren song, and it is beautiful, and, and, and it messes him over, and he is pleading for them to take him right to it. 
but the ropes are binding him and the other sailors have their ears clogged and they make it safe. But there's another story from, from Greek mythology that has another character named, named Jason and, and he had a different plan for when it came to, to facing the sirens. He, he brought Orpheus on his ship. And, and Orpheus was this, the, the most skilled musician that there ever was. And he had him play beautiful and loud music, music that would drown out the song of the sirens. And he didn't tie himself to a mast, and he didn't clog any ears. He and all of his men, they listened to the beautiful songs and the beautiful music that Orpheus played and they were undeterred from their course. So those are two radically different ways to approach the Christian life and to approach holiness. Where do you find yourself? You tied to the mast? You there listening with longing to what this world offers and the opportunities and pleasures that are available there and what it describes as comfortable and wonderful and fulfilling according to its value system and maybe what you see some of your, your friends pursuing and what they get to be a part of and you find in your heart there's, there's, there's something that aches for that and, 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 and yet you're just tied to the mast you're restrained there, just maybe out of brute force because you don't, you know, if you, if you sinned, you wouldn't have to deal with the consequences. Or maybe your parents have you like permanently grounded and you barely leave your bedroom, right? Whatever it is, right? There, there's some external constraint that's put in place there that says, nope, can't go see those sirens. But there's nothing in your heart that compels you towards something else. Is that what's going on for you? Or maybe you have thrown away the restraints. Maybe you've untied yourself from the mast and you've just indulged in what this world offers and opportunities for sin. You've become untethered. Listen, if, if you're going to live as God has called you this year, you, you need to be convinced that it is good, that it is beautiful, that it will gain you more, so much more than, than any temporary thing that this world can provide for you because God, again, God wants your joy. He's not here to get stuff from you. He's the giver. And he has amazing gifts in store for you. And namely to satisfy you with himself. And so when he commands you, he says do this and don't do this. When he says you need to be about this and you need to avoid this. Well, what's going on there? Is that to hamper your fun? Is that to to give you a second best life? This is God saying, I want you to be satisfied. So 
follow my ways. Trust me. Be confident in my reward. I have planned for your happiness from all eternity. That's why I've made you. I am, I'm not needy. I'm not a needy God. I am filled to the brim and I am spilling over and you are an empty vessel and you go somewhere to be filled and come to me. I'm a stream that never ends. Sam Storm says, every syllable of every statute, every clause of every commandment that ever proceeded from the mouth of God was divinely designed to bring those who would obey into the greatest imaginable happiness of heart. Don't swallow God's law like castor oil. For when you understand his intent, it will be like honey on your lips and sweetness to your soul. Ben, you can go ahead and come back up, man. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And every time you say no to temptation, every time you resist gossip, every time you refuse to walk in unforgiveness, every time you turn away from the response that would be easy and fine here and now, but it's just laziness. Maybe it's hiding behind something that looks productive. It looks like you have the right priorities in place, but it's just coming from a lazy heart. When you turn away from that, every time you are tempted to open up your device and go to that web page that's going to get you some sort of excitement right now. Every time you turn away from the fleeting pleasures of sin, it is not wasted. It is met with the reward of God. Here and now, and forever in the future in unending and right now unseen ways. You have, to, you have to believe what we said last night. That's why this chapter is being written because there's what you see. And on, on the other side of that is everything you can't see. Now, now you got the present right here and you can see it. But, and life is done. And on the other side of that, what you can't see yet, but it's there is eternity. And that's the $600 billion return on your investment with what you do with the right now. And that's the reward that awaits every time we turn to God and live faithfully for Him. Listen, I cannot tell you a time that I have regretted obeying God. And I know that sounds like what I'm supposed to say because... I'm a pastor, I'm like paid to say stuff like that, but honestly, I, I've never gotten the short end of the deal. I've never, I've never felt like, oh man, if only I had sinned, right? That, that's, never, that's never been my experience. 
But I have regretted times when I have too easily settled and tried to fall when I could stand, when I settled for something cheap. So I want to I want to give us an opportunity to consider tonight. How are we postured toward God? Is He our joy? Is there delight in us toward Him? Or are we just running on fumes spiritually because we have already spent our energy on stuff that will matter so little so soon hasn't gotten us what we thought it would are you tied to the mast are you looking over the edge longing for what this world offers what other people are allowed to do and it's just something outside of you that's holding you back Listen, that's a dangerous place to be because one day the fence gets lifted and you can run away. There needs to be something compelling you, something in God that you see as worth it. You need to want to see God for it to matter that the pure in heart get to see him not because purity in heart is what qualifies us to see God because it's the purifying blood of Jesus that qualifies us to see him but that has an effect on us and 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 being pure in heart that it's the best seats in the house to see God don't choose to to sit somewhere distant up in in the nosebleed sections of the bleachers because you are cozied up to something that's going to be gone from you in an instant. You choose the best seats in the house right next to where he is. So let's stand together. Let's just, uh, we're going to sing and just invite the Lord to do work with us and help us understand where we are in light of these things and I'll lead us in a moment.